There is no question that Andy Warhol is one of the most seminal artists of our time. Aside from the wealth of work he created, films, paintings, silkscreens, sound pieces, Warhol also changed the way artists created and shared their own work. Often seen as an elusive and arrogant figure, historians and curators have a different take. Warhol as a humanist who gathered people together to make change. Last week, an extensive exhibition opened at the de Young Museum here in San Francisco that looked at yet another aspect of Warhol, his influence by and on music. He loved Judy Garland and Marilyn Monroe. He was an avid opera enthusiast. He had a sort of adoration for Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, and he managed the Velvet Underground. He also designed over 50 album covers for a wide range of genres and designed concert posters for clubs like the Fillmore here in San Francisco. My name is Sonny Katenjian. This is Sight Unseen, a weekly program that speaks with artists of all different mediums to uncover the unseen aspects of their work and explore the ways in which they see the world. This week, Tim Burkhardt, curator of American art at the de Young Museum, speaks with me about Warhol Live, which opened on Valentine's Day. Here, Burgard reflects on the assumptions made about Warhol's character and how they might be inaccurate. Please stay tuned. I think a lot of people have a preconception of Andy Warhol as this Svengali-like 1960s figure who perhaps most famously had the factory ensemble and perhaps were maybe sort of aware of his cult of celebrity and fame and uh, what he did or didn't contribute to that. I often say he's more the messenger than the creator of our ideas about fame and celebrity. I think a lot of people also have a preconception of Warhol as the sort of prince of pop art, the one who really did indeed um, help to contribute, along with Roy Lichtenstein and other artists, our conception of what pop art is, bringing mass-produced commercial culture into the realm of fine art and into the realm of mainstream art. And in this exhibition, we see another side of Warhol. We don't see the party Studio 54, the Wild Factory, nor do we necessarily, I mean, we do see pop art here, of course, but there's a, a, a very unique third element that we see here. It's a very unique focus on Warhol's work, I agree. What's interesting is all the important and or characteristic elements of his work are here. People will see the Brillo boxes and they will see the uh, Elvis Presley paintings and they'll see the pop art flowers and films from the factory with Edie Sedgwick and portraits from the Studio 54 era, but what ties them all together, you're absolutely right, is this common theme of music. And I myself, as a curator and as an art historian, did not realize and hadn't thought before about how music really is a consistent theme, so to speak, throughout all of his work and really ties it all together. From the Marilyn Monroe and Elvis Presley paintings at the very beginning to the Studio 54 era portraits of Prince and Michael Jackson at the end. So when we first enter into this very first room, we hear... Judy Garland. I have to say, I, I don't know if this is fair to say, but it's somewhat kitschy. Um, <laughs> and I think that's probably un unfair because it's become kitschy. It's not like Judy Garland is inherently kitschy. But why do, why do we hear her and what, what do we see around us? 
What we hear is indeed Judy Garland, because she really was probably Warhol's first idol. One of the great lessons of the exhibition is that Warhol is also a fan. We sort of forget when someone becomes a celebrity in their own right that for much of their childhood or adolescence they're often fans, and he was a fan of Judy Garland and Shirley Temple. One of the first objects you see when you walk in the exhibition is a photograph autographed by Shirley Temple on a publicity still inscribed to Andrew Warhola, which was his real name in Pittsburgh, growing up as a second-generation immigrant. And he said he would go to the theater every week to see these great musical stars. Remember, this is the classic era of the 1930s, 40s musicals. And this is what he grows up with. He grows up idolizing these stars and admiring and inspiring to their fame and their celebrity. That being said, it is absolutely true that Warhol, of all people, is keenly aware of the camp or kitsch factor that permeates American culture, and he embraces it, he loves it, but he's also capable of critiquing it. One of the works that you see in the show, or one of the themes, I should say, because there are actually three works, is Elvis Presley. And while you might think of him as the great pioneer of rock and roll in the 1950s, these are from the Elvis Hollywood era. These are the kitsch Elvis. This is the Viva Las Vegas era. And the portraits are actually based on a film still for a movie called Flaming Star. I think Warhol <laughs> probably appreciated the pun in that, um, and the camp and kitsch factor in that. And what's interesting is he's shown as the Western cowboy, actually holding a gun and pointing it at the viewer. We have a single Elvis, a double Elvis, and a triple Elvis. And I find them really quite moving because in these giant life-size silkscreen portraits, he's armed and ready and is he just drawn his gun, he's sort of the classic all-American cowboy, and yet there's no foe. And there's no context. He's been completely dematerialized and removed from the context maybe of a Western town or a Hollywood movie set. And so I think it's a very existential image and maybe a commentary on America's role in the world as being perceived as the cowboy, the sort of gunslinging. Remember, this is 1963, and we were seen by much of the world as the cowboy. You mean, the, there was something that you had said very that during the press preview that I thought was really interesting, and we will get to that, I think, later in this interview, but um, I do want to touch upon it a little bit just because you mentioned the silk screens is how much Warhol brought back the portrait and uh, how he was truly a portrait artist. Uh, could, you, could you just touch upon that a little bit and then again we'll talk about it later? One of the most interesting things about his work, I think, that's often overlooked, he's seen as the purveyor of these mass-produced objects, Brillo boxes and Campbell's soup cans and so forth. I think at heart, Warhol is a humanist. And it's worth noting how the human figure and the human face, portraiture, is really also a consistent theme throughout his work. We're standing here in a gallery filled with Elvis Presley's and Marilyn Monroe's and Judy Garland's and Liza Minnelli's here in the very first room. And this is really an important part of his work that's often overlooked, is the deep humanist core. He might be the idolizing fan or he might be the critical artist sort of dissecting and examining how these figures operate in American culture. But he does embrace them and he does really re-energize portraiture as a, a, a medium in American art, which had really been marginalized by abstraction. And, you know, the, the humanist issue that you bring up is definitely something that we do not associate uh, Warhol to immediately be. I mean, if you think about the fact that he brought people together, the fact that he created spaces where people could really enjoy themselves and explore themselves, and that's very humanistic, but he's definitely not the, seen that way. I think he personally cultivated so carefully that detached persona of the voyeurs who 
perhaps sets things in motion, like you said, on a stage set almost, like the factory studio in New York City, but doesn't necessarily participate actively, or later in the Studio 54 years, he's always there with his tape recorder or his video camera, but he's not participating, he's recording. And then, of course, very famously in interviews, he'd give these very opaque answers, or no answer at all, or multiple answers that all contradicted each other. And I think that really belies the truth, which is, in fact, he was a very sensitive person. And this was a guise that he adopted, I think, to hide his true feelings. And he was so successful at promoting it, that, and it became the face of pop art, as it were, that it actually was perceived incorrectly, I think, as being his true personality. It, it's not a surprise that he was sensitive, considering that he liked Judy Garland. He also uh, really loved was it classical music and, and um, musicals as well? I mean, that we're going to be hearing a very different sort of music later in this show. So it's interesting that those were his roots, so to speak. It's true. We're standing in the second gallery, and there is a whole selection of works pertaining to his interest in all the musical arts and all the dance arts. There's a wonderful Christmas card that he drew of himself in five different dance poses. He was the only male member of the Carnegie Art Institute Dance Club. Um, not very good, by the way, by his own admission, uh, but he was a fan. He attends the opera, the ballet, the symphony. He's part of the student group at Carnegie called Kano, which invites artists to come and perform. He even sees John Cage perform in Pittsburgh in the 1940s, which is quite extraordinary. During the factory years, when he was seen as the purveyor or prince of pop art and sort of holding forth at his factory studio in Manhattan, what the factory regulars and superstars didn't know is that all through the 1960s, he had a season subscription to the Metropolitan Opera. So he is multifaceted. He likes all genres of music. One of the great revelations of the exhibition is that we have the record album covers that he designed, and they cover every genre of music. And it's interesting, they even cover genres of music he didn't care for, one of which is jazz. He respected jazz, he was aware of it, he even went to some concerts, but he never truly responded to it. Um, sort of ironic for one of the great sort of improvisational artists in some respects, but I think he liked control, ultimately. He loved the idea of the found object or the found idea, a Brillo box or a Campbell's soup can. Whereas jazz is so famously improvisational, I think it's sort of open-ended nature didn't really appeal to him in the same way. And the record album covers are extraordinary because they do cover every genre of music, classical, jazz, very famously rock music, of course. Among the most famous rock album covers, of course, are the Rolling Stones' Sticky Fingers cover, which has the actual zipper on the blue jeans on the cover, um, and underwear photographed underneath if you open the zipper. Um, a wonderful sort of uh, visual image to capture the absolute essence of rock and roll, which honestly, beyond the music, is about sex on many levels, and Warhol very beautifully captured that. The other really, truly famous or iconic album cover is The Velvet Underground and Nico from 1967 with the banana on the cover that you peel off the vinyl banana uh, cover, skin as it were, and underneath is a vivid pink banana underneath, again with very strong sexual overtones obviously. <laughs> what I didn't know, I could name about four or five famous album covers. I did not know there were 51 album covers designed by Andy Warhol, um, and they are a major focus of the show and a revelation to a lot of people. What I find interesting is that control and improvisation issue that you talk about we will be seeing, I think it's, it's called screen tests later in the show. 
you don't know what's going to happen in the screen test necessarily. So while it may not be improvisational, it's definitely not controlled. I mean, only the context is controlled. So there seems to be a sort of contradiction in that, in the sense that he does love this control and and this and 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 this very kind of not rigid but very clear way of expressing something and show, and reflecting something. But at the same time, there's this you know whatever might happen might happen sort of essence to his life and his work. I think that's absolutely correct. He does manage to balance this dichotomy of, of absolute control and seemingly no control. There's a slight bifurcation perhaps in his own work versus the works that others create or that he allows to happen. So he might be very controlled in some ways about his choice of imagery, the Brillo boxes or the Campbell's soup cans or the Elvises or the Marilyns, and not choose other things. He didn't choose everything from pop culture. He made specific choices. On the other hand, he very famously made the silk screens. He didn't register them properly on the canvases so that, as one of his assistants said, Gerard Malangi said, the, what's, Randy, you're not doing it right. If you registered it, Elizabeth Taylor's lips would actually be on her mouth, and now the color is sort of sliding off to the side. He said, I don't care. I like it that way. That's what I like about it is this sort of chance occurrence. So he manages to have absolute control. It's the same image repeated over and over in multiplicity, but then at the same time to have these chance effects and, of course, to vary the colors, which he very famously does. I think it's also true that Warhol, in his work, especially in his film work, like the screen tests, and in his famous films Sleep and Empire and others, I often say that what he does is he creates the stage, at, very famously at the factory studio in New York City, and allows things to unfold or to happen. And so, for example, when he presses the button on the film, the 16 millimeter uh, film recorder or projector, or when he presses the button on his tape recorder, he is setting in motion. And inherently what he discovered, of course, is that as we know all too well today from reality television, people love to perform. If you turn on the camera or turn on the tape recorder, they perform. So he, all he needed to do was set the sort of mise-en-scene and then they would deliver the material or life itself would deliver the material. Exactly, and, and actually in this next room, you are showing the famous empire. Um, for, for listeners that don't know what empire is, um, could you describe it? Because I, I do think it's one of those seminal works of, of the 20th century? There are two iconic films uh, shown large-scale in this room. One is Empire, which is an eight-hour, non-stop, actual-time footage of the Empire State Building shot from a single vantage point in a nearby office building. Um, Warhol jokingly referred to it as an eight-hour hard-on. Um, but, uh, and of course, you know, famously, the Empire State Building is often perceived as, like all skyscrapers, as having phallic connotations. I think that's also very typical of Warhol in being somewhat um, flip about his description of his own work. In fact, it's a very serious film. It is an exercise in careful looking, in slowing down our senses, which now more than ever, from the 40 years ago when the film was made, are about the momentary instant the sound bite, the momentary glance at a work of art and then you move on to the next thing or the next thing on YouTube or whatever media you might be looking at. And I think it is about this protracted, almost zen-like meditative state that you can look at this for eight hours and notice very, very subtle changes like the lights coming on in the building as it moves from dusk to dark, finally to two in the morning when the film ends. I think also having said all this, although it has extraordinary formal qualities and very interesting ideas about time and space, 
uh, and light for that matter. It's also called empire. It's not called empire state building. It's not called the empire state. And I think, again, like Elvis Presley in the 60s representing the American cowboy, it's possible to see the Empire State Building, then still the world's tallest building, as saying something about the American empire itself in a very ironic way. And perhaps, perhaps hence Warhol's uh, somewhat flip comment about the eight-hour hard-on as well. Well, uh, something, another thing that you, I think, mentioned when I was here last is that uh, there's this interchangeability between um, the film as a painting and a painting as, as film, as moving image, because next to it we see, I think that's a silk screen of what looks like uh, a series of films. So could you say something about that? There is a fascinating sort of split between our conventional assumptions about painting and about film. We assume film moves. And in fact, what he does is create situations like Empire in which seemingly nothing moves, or it moves so slowly as to be almost imperceptible. You have to wait hours for the dusk to fade into darkness, and then you're not sure quite when it happened. It, it's, now, you, now it's dark and before it was light, but you can't actually pinpoint an instant when that happened, which is why the turning on and off of the lights is so beautiful. These are our only truly temporal indicators of what's going on. Conversely, when you look at the paintings, which ostensibly, of course, by their very nature, don't move, we all know oil paintings or silk screens don't move, and yet, by multiplying the imagery, he actually creates the semblance or the appearance of motion. Um, this is true, certainly, in things like the Brillo boxes or the Coca-Cola bottles and the sort of repetition of imagery that he learns from artists like John Cage, but it's also true in a painting in the exhibition of Merce Cunningham, in which he shows Cunningham in three different poses. He shows Cunningham sort of getting ready, sort of bending his knees, in the second one, he's jumping in the air. and the third one, he's actually taking a bow. So in microcosm, you have, the essence, the whole performance of Cunningham uh, with a set designed by Robert Rauschenberg. He's actually wearing a chair on his back designed by Rauschenberg. And so this is a wonderful image that will remind a lot of viewers of Edward Moybridge's famous photographs made right here in California with the funding of Leyland Stanford, of Stanford University, of human and animal locomotion, running horses, running people, and so forth. This is one of the things that's often overlooked about Warhol. He's a great student of art history. He quotes and references art history constantly in his work, whether it's the Mona Lisa or whether it's Edward Muybridge motion photography. Yeah, it's, it's, um, he was definitely very thoughtful, to say the least. And actually, around us on the walls are, are quotes that he said, which is great because he probably wouldn't have said those being the quiet person that he seemed to be in in um, in society, what is one of your favorite favorite quotes um, that that there is in this exhibition? Well, one of the quotes that's in this room is, "I like boring things. I like things to be exactly the same over and over again." And that's a wonderful quote because it's not unlike our, our experience of Empire, the film, but it's also very much derived from John Cage. John Cage is one of his greatest influences. He sees him in Pittsburgh in the 1940s. Later, he gets to become good friends with him in New York City. John Cage's most famous, iconic work, maybe the most famous musical composition of the post-war period, is in fact four minutes and 33 seconds at which a pianist gets on stage sits at a piano, and does nothing for four minutes and 33 seconds. His point, of course, was that the real music is created by the ambient sound, the people nervously rustling or yelling out bad things from the audience or leaving or the sirens out in the street, whatever it might be. He said, sound is everywhere. I realize we can never escape sound. And, of course, ultimately, by merely redefining it, we can also define it as art.
And that's Warhol's great contribution as well. We see Brillo boxes around us all every day or Campbell's soup cans. We take them for granted. They're so pervasive we don't even notice Coca-Cola bottles anymore, or at least plastic ones now. And he draws our attention to them and focuses with laser-like vision, both by multiplying them and by putting them in a work of art, to draw our attention to something so commonplace and then to remind us how iconic these very commonplace things actually are. So the, these, these three rooms serve as a sort of leading up to a whole new kind of world that, that, that seems very different from the one that we're immersed in right here, which is the world of, of rock music and, and the world of the Velvet Underground. So maybe we should continue on into the next room. You're listening to an interview with curator Tim Burghardt about the new exhibit at the De Young Museum, Warhol Live which looks at the work of Andy Warhol and his intersections, inspirations, and influence on music. So in this room, when we first enter, we see the Brillo boxes, which reminds me of the pieces in Marfa, Texas by Donald Judd. So let's, and, and we also start seeing more of that, the, the, the Andy Warhol that we're so familiar with, the flowers and his own self-portrait, which reminds me a little bit of the Obama portrait now. But anyhow, um, could you describe what we're about to kind of jump into? It's true, the first three galleries of the exhibition really are his formative influences from Hollywood to Pittsburgh to the early years in New York City with John Cage and Merce Cunningham and Robert Rauschenberg. When we enter this fourth gallery, and now we have the Rolling Stones track coming on, uh, I can't get no satisfaction. Um, what we really have is the culmination of Warhol's mature work as an artist. These are the famous factory years from 1964 to 1967. The very first works created in the factory are indeed these Brillo boxes, which are laid out in the exhibition exactly like a factory assembly line, and that's what Warhol does. He mass produces these objects of popular culture, and one of his greatest contributions as an artist, and this goes far beyond pop art itself, is to take objects from mass-produced commercial culture and make them accessible to the general public. Fine art before this in America, or around the world for that matter, was perceived as the domain of a select few, whether they were critics or collectors or curators in museums. He takes something so commonplace, so accessible to everybody. Everybody gets it, everybody understands it, or at least thinks that they understand it on some level. And when you look back at Warhol's contributions in the mid-60s, you realize he was really a populist who was trying to make a democratic art that was accessible to everybody and not elitist. He loved the idea that anybody could be an artist. He loved the idea that anybody could be famous for 15 minutes and that anybody could make a Brillo box. He drove out west with the Velvet Underground. He said the whole road trip was so bizarre because everywhere we drove in 1966, it was pop art. And he realized he was seeing it in the roadside architecture. And of course, what he was saying is this is what art is really about. It's about redefining your frame of vision so that even he could go past roadside architecture in Las Vegas or somewhere out west or in California and see a reflection of pop art or a pop aesthetic or a pop sensibility. So that's really his great contribution is to bring modern art, contemporary art into a more populist democratic realm in which it was truly accessible to all. Now how does this differ from ready-mades? They are sometimes linked to ready-mades. That's actually a very good point. And in the exhibition, in this gallery, is a 12-pack, uh, as it were, of Coca-Cola bottles that are sitting in a little crate. 
and he spray painted them silver to give them that, that pop art feeling. By the way, he called it the Silver Factory, which was famously covered entirely in silver paint and silver aluminum foil because he said three things. He said it's like the space age, very new agey, space agey. He said um, it's also uh, very modern. Um, and also he said it's like Hollywood in that way. Um, and sort of the glitz and glitter of silver and gold. And then lastly, very interestingly, he said it's like a mirror. And so this idea that the factory functioned on one level as a giant film set in which your own image was reflected back at you, or for that matter, his image. There's a wonderful self-portrait here in the gallery. Um, but the pop art, uh, sort of the, literally the pop Coca-Cola pop bottles uh, that are in this gallery are absolutely an homage to Marcel Duchamp. Marcel Duchamp in 1917 very famously took a ordinary ceramic porcelain men's room urinal, turned it upside down, called it uh, fountain instead of what it really was, gave it a nice allegorical artistic title, and then signed it, our mutt, and dated it. Uh, this very famous object is considered the first ready-made, the first found object that by his own act is redefined as art. And this is really what Warhol does. He takes the Coca-Cola bottles, which in this case really are actual Coca-Cola bottles, all those spray-painted silver, as opposed to the Brillo boxes, which are replicas or facsimiles made in wood with silkscreen on them. And so the title of the Coca-Cola bottles in this exhibition is actually called You're In, Y-O-U apostrophe R-E, In, You Are In. But urine also sounds like U-R-I-N-E, urine, which is a reference to Fountain and to Marcel Duchamp explicitly. So he absolutely owes that legacy to Marcel Duchamp. Not only does he owe it, but he acknowledges that, which is yeah. pretty noble for an artist, I've got to say. So at the end of this room, uh, or really in a somewhat separate room, uh, we see a film of, of what exactly? I see a bunch of... Um, what looks like artistic people doing something interesting. They are artistic <laughs> people doing something. That's exactly right. <laughs> we have recreated, a, we call it the factory film room, and um, it is a running loop of clips from some of his most famous films, including uh, Poor Little Rich Girl with E.D. Sedgwick, and then other factory regulars, the superstars, as they were called. This is the beginning of his conscious conception that anybody could be made a star. And a realization that he could make anybody a star. Uh, Edie Sedgwick is perhaps the most famous or infamous. Um, this whole attraction of the factory, which had this essentially open door policy where anyone could walk in and did, uh, very famously in the case of Valerie Solanas who attempted to assassinate him in 1968. Um, but what's interesting about it, I've likened uh, the sort of metaphor here as it were to being the urban counterpart to a rural commune. We know those well here in Northern California or Southern California for that matter. And so that sort of open door policy of anyone could come here and have this happening, this is a total reconception of what an artist's studio might be from the abstract expressionist generation where it was this closed environment where the single artist wrestles with his or her demons and these subconscious or very angst-ridden ideas or cosmic ideals. Um, and Warhol's is very much open and open to the public. Mm -hmm. Warhol really does revive this idea that art could play an active role in creating a new perception of the world. And he really deserves a lot of credit for that. I think today probably we've moved to something more along the lines of the artistic collective, which doesn't necessarily work in one space or have a central location where people live, work, sleep, eat together, um, but rather that you come together for art fairs or special installations as a collective. It's a very different and more global idea about what it might be. He did um, definitely offer the sense that, that art can change the world. 
And it's also wonderful that um, you that an artist can create something that can cause such a wide range of, of reactions and emotions. I mean, it's 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 a, it's a definite testament to um, his his ability to you know to just stir things up. So um, this next room is most unusual for a museum. It is. Um, I wonder if my my future child will have this room in their house one day. <laughs> um, so during the, the press preview, there was a, a strong desire to kind of hang out and stay in this room. Someone even mentioned possibly lighting up in this room. Um, can, you, can, can you describe it? We are standing in a recreation of the exploding plastic inevitable, which is the wonderful 60s poppy title that Warhol gave to the sound and light show he created for the Velvet Underground. And this sound and light show, with it now we think very primitive slides, these hand-colored slides with polka dots and stripes and this sort of primitive psychedelia and there's a glitter ball up in the top of the ceiling, really embodying Warhol's, again, utopian idea that you could create a total environment, a total art environment with images, sound, music. How do you think people in their 60s would, would look at this part of the exhibition? Do you think that they would wonder why is this art, why is this in a museum? Or do you think it would seem totally natural? Or what, what is the conversation that's happening in their heads? That's a really interesting question, and I think it actually illuminates some of Warhol's contributions. You are absolutely correct that most traditional fine art museums, we are the fine arts museums of San Francisco, did not historically show record album covers or guitars owned by famous rock musicians or the signed contracts for the Velvet Underground with their record company and so forth, uh, or rock posters from the Fillmore. What has happened is over the last decade in particular has been a breaking down of those barriers dividing so-called fine art from so-called commercial art or from pop culture. And Warhol really, of course, deserves a lot of the credit for breaking down those barriers. He actually began in New York City as a commercial artist doing illustrations for shoes and other fashion accessories and so forth. And he always signed his own name. Other artists of the era said, it's okay to dirty your hands with commercial work and earn some money to pay your rent, but don't use your real name. So Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg did this and made up a fake pseudonym, Matson Jones, for all their commercial work. Warhol signed his work from the beginning, and of course he saw no distinction between the early commercial work and the later pop art and the later Studio 54 era portraits and so forth. So he deserves a lot of the credit for redefining culture so that a fine arts museum in 2009 can actually exhibit Lou Reed's guitar and these films and the music and the light and sound show. Our experience now is that people are absolutely accepting of this because we experience it in our daily lives. It's very odd that I often say that what museums preserve best, of course, is history. But in the process, they often preserve outmoded ways of thinking. We live in the real world. We're in Golden Gate Park, in San Francisco, in California, in the midst of the worst recession or depression since the 1930s in the United States. And yet you might walk into a museum and think you're in some rarefied temple, the culture that had no connection to the outside world. This exhibition is more like the outside world, and it's more like the world that Warhol saw, experienced, and embraced, and the world that he helped to redefine. Those were the words of Tim Burkhardt speaking about the exhibition Warhol Live, currently at the de Young Museum in San Francisco. To learn more, please visit famsf.org. My name is Tani Katenjian. This is Sight Unseen, shedding light on the creative world through candid conversations with the artists of our time. You're listening to Resonance 
104.4 FM, the UK's first radio art station.